G'day folks, welcome to Pause and Listen, a podcast series brought to you by Big Dog Pet Foods, the leading pet nutrition provider in Australia with over 20 years of experience in the pet industry. We provide educational resources for pet parents and are proud of being transparent in everything we do. The podcast series is hosted by me, Johnny Manning, and we bring you interviews and deep dives into pet nutrition, pet care, training, and regular Ask a Vet segments. So thanks for tuning in. Now get your tails wagging and we'll get yapping. Good day, pet owners, fur parents, and lovers of all creatures, great and small. Welcome to Pause and Listen. It's a big dog pet foods podcast and a place for you to come to find out all manner of pet-related information. My name's Johnny Manning. Today I'm talking to, this intro is going to be good, creative director and founder of Shy Tiger. Uh, which is a vet-created, pet-appreciated natural health and lifestyle products uh, company, Melbourne veterinarian and owner of Mount Mount Albert Vet Surgery, the one, the only, the pet-tastic, Dr. Nicole Rouse. Welcome, Dr. Nicole. This is great to have you on our podcast today. Thank you so much, Johnny. That was quite the intro. I enjoyed that. I'll have to copy that one. I told you it was going to be a good <laughs> intro. I'm, I'm, glad it, uh, I'm glad it met the expectations. Hey, Dr. Nicole, you're, you're such a, a rounded, I guess, um, animal advocate and animal professional, but I want to take it back a little bit. Why be a vet? Tell me what was the catalyst to you becoming a vet way back when? Yeah, good question. And it's one of those sort of classic vet questions, I think, isn't it? Uh, I think I'm one of those walking cliche uh, vets that I grew up just wanting to be a vet. And I, to the to the point where I actually just assumed everyone grew up knowing what they want to do in life. So I was probably six, I think, when I decided I wanted to be a vet and just never, never changed my mind. I never thought there was another option for me. It's always what I wanted to do. And I it took me a while to get into vet school uh, but once I got there and then obviously became a vet um, and I've loved it every day since and and I know a lot of people who grew up like me wanting to be a vet and then became a vet and it wasn't quite the profession that they were expecting so that would have been really challenging so I'm actually quite grateful that you know I always knew what I wanted to do and then I got to do it and still love it so yeah, it's um, one of those just very fortunate people that always knew what they wanted to do in life. I'm glad it wasn't like pulling the curtain back in Oz. I'm glad it was all that you imagined yeah. it to be. And one thing I did forget during that um, incredible and comprehensive introduction was Pudding, who was on camera just before. Oh, yes. She's asleep on my lap. Yes, um, Pudding is a one-year-old griffin and they're quite commonly known griffins as a velcro velcro breed so yeah they just sort of attach to you so she does if i as soon as i sit down she tends to be on my lap um and i can probably turn the camera for anyone watching the video version of this you can see there's um pickle who hey, pickle. is the og of shy tiger so she's three uh and she's my rough coated griffin who has a bit more independence okay very good. Well, so you've, you've just told us, um, you know, what, why you wanted to be a vet. And it's basically a lifelong ambition, mm-hmm. which is really, really cool. Um, tell me this. When you're at vet school versus coming out of, of vet school into the wide world of actually being a veterinarian, how is that learning mm-hmm. curve versus what you learnt in university out in, out in the real world? Yeah, that's mm, interesting. So I think... So I did a science degree and then I did my vet degree. So I was at uni for nine years all up before I headed out into the big wide world. Are you Van Wilder, are you? Yeah, I was, I was 27 <laughs> before I became a vet. Um, so, 
Yeah, I think you're in a bit of a bubble in vet school. And I think you, you obviously you don't know what you don't know. I was lucky that um, through vet school, well, I, it was a strategy as well, but I did a lot of vet nursing. So I was exposed to clinical practice quite a lot. I um, worked in emergency and specialist clinics. So when I graduated, I had a lot of nursing skills on my hands and I'd been exposed to clinical practice. So that was really good. But I don't think anything prepares you for the responsibility of um, having a child's life, whether that's a human child being a doctor, a human doctor, or a, a fur child being a vet, that life in your hands and the responsibility of that decision making. So, you know, when nothing can prepare you when the sick animal comes in and the owner's putting their pet's life in your hands. And it's up to you whether that pet lives or dies. No one can prepare you for that. So that was, that took a while and I was glad I was older. I was glad I was 27 before I was doing that. And I do feel for the young vets when they're, you know, 22 coming out of vet school and all of a sudden they're handed that responsibility. That's huge. Uh, and then there's one thing to be book smart. So you've passed all your exams, you know, you know, I guess you know everything about the physiology of, of how the body works, but putting it into practice and making real life recommendations to pet owners. They don't, you know, there's no Medicare in the pet world. So every time you want to do a blood test, it costs a lot of money. Everything, every x-ray costs a lot of money. Uh, sometimes when you get specialists involved, that costs a lot of money too. So to, to then put into practice a strategy to help the owners, that, that took a while as well. But I love, one of my favorite things about being a vet is the relationship between pet owners and their pets. and and uh, I thrive off that and nourishing and nurturing that relationship. So I really enjoy that clinical practice. Sometimes it can feel a bit like counselling, but it's um, in, a, in a really nice way. So, yeah, it's, it's very rewarding, but that was quite a steep learning curve, learning that. It's funny, you just said before you knew some people, had some friends who wanted to be vets, became vets, and then realised it wasn't for them. Do you think what you said mm. about that responsibility of having a, a fur baby in your hands, do you reckon that maybe fed into these people not wanting to do that and potentially because they were at a young age and they they didn't necessarily I guess know how to handle that responsibility yeah I think so I think the reality of the daily grind of a lot of jobs is not what kids you know have in their eyes I think particularly as a vet everyone grows up thinking we just cuddle puppies and kittens all day long that'd be really nice but everyone thinks it's going to be like a country practice yeah, yeah, exactly. Going patting the cow and, and things like that. So yeah, I think I think the responsibility is what um, what affects people. And I guess the type of personalities are often drawn to the vet profession. That type A type personality. A lot of people with that style of personality are perfectionists, and I don't think it always suits our profession to be a perfectionist. You can't always. You can't do everything perfectly because you have to make maybe compromise, not necessarily to the detriment of the health, but you can you might have to logistical or financial compromises to get the best outcome for that family. And it's not always on paper a perfect plan, is it? So that can rattle some people and, and people can struggle. And if you're lying in bed at night analysing and overanalyzing every case and decision that you've made, that just wears people down very quickly. Yeah, I can imagine. I think we, we had a we spoke to a vet last year and he spoke about you know the fact that um mental health is a real issue within the the veterinary community mm -hmm. and i think um i walked away from that conversation viewing 
I've always loved my vets, but obviously having a a, a, a very altered view on on the vet now. You know, you you as you said, there's no Medicare. You always walk out going, "Oh my word, that's so expensive." But as you know, it it is what it is. When you take on a an animal or a dog, you take on that responsibility and all that comes with it, right? Yeah, I think so. And I think that our industry probably hasn't done any favours for itself in the last 30 plus years. Um, Educating the communities to what the true costs of owning a pet are. So if you think about it from the pet pet owner's point of view, the first medical procedure that they're often exposed to a vet clinic is a desexing, isn't it? So that has traditionally been a very discounted community service. So that might cost people, it used to cost $200, $500, say. So that in their mind, they're like, okay, well, then if I need something done, that's kind of what it costs. Then all of a sudden the dog needs a lump off and it's $1,000. And they're like, what? Why is it so expensive? But, you know, it's because we were discounting the first service because it's seen as community service. And there's also that whole, well, if you really love them, you wouldn't charge me that. Well, at the end of the day, we have to be businesses as well, don't we? So we have to support people people working for us. They're very expensive businesses to run. But you go to the dentist and you get a decent bill or the orthodontist and you expect that. So the community perception is that these services cost X or that's expensive but reasonable, whereas going to the vet is expensive but unreasonable. So it's just a matter of shifting the mindset of the public as to what the value is around uh, pet ownership. Um, you know, maybe they're not, they weren't complaining spending $7,000 on their cavoodle during COVID to purchase it, but then they weren't happy with a $300 bill going to visit the vet. So it's just a value mindset shift that we need to work on with the public to understand the true cost of, of owning a pet and the, the role the veterinary profession pays and that we, we just unfortunately have to pay for it. Yeah, and I think it's great that we can have those discussions on this forum as well and, you know, whoever's listening mm. can potentially start to get that message reiterated, you know, every time we, we talk to great vets like yourselves. Now, I want to touch on when you first, well, not necessarily when you first became a vet, but the, the learning curve um, being out there, actually treating animals and understanding, you know, what treatments are, I guess, effective and, and what are not, it, it, is that kind of what, uh, I guess led you to start your own company with these uh, products in in Shy Tiger? Yes and no. Um, I think that so I would consider myself an integrative vet. So I do a lot of conventional medicine as well as natural integrative practices. I think what um, what the catalyst for that switch was, which that happened before I started Shy Tiger, uh, was, again, a bit of a walking cliche, when I had my own human children. So when I had my human, my first human child, that was 2014. I'm glad you're making that and distinction. She had, when I had my first yeah. human child. Human <laughs> child. So she had um, eczema as a kid, as a baby, and I had I have eczema, good genetics. I had gestational diabetes through it. Um, and she then developed a she's anaphylactic to tree nuts. So I've always been relatively healthy, but not super passionate about gluten and and dairy and things like that. But when I had that switch with her where I was looking at, well, now I'm responsible for a human, what can I possibly do to reduce her allergies, to improve her quality of life, to, you know, stop any suffering, give it, give her the best life, which is what we want as pet owners. Then I started to look at the role of gluten more, 
dairy, more processed foods, more. And again, I wasn't eating badly, but I wasn't so focused on it. I was probably having, you know, a bit more sugar and processed food than I needed to. So once I started to do that, I'm like, okay, you get a bit of a penny drop. You're like, well, why, why is it any different for our pets? And, and then I had that epiphany one day where you're like, okay, well, if I took my fur child to the doctor and I'm picturing my human child and they said to me, you know, and I'm not saying this because I'm with big dog or anything like that, but this is what triggered, triggered me to switch to fresh feeding. I was like, if I took my fur child and they said to me, you pick one cereal, one synthetic vitamin, a protein powder, and you feed that to your human child every day for the rest of their life, and that will give them their best health. I just look at them like they were stupid. And I'm like, and then I all of a sudden became so embarrassed that my whole profession is the only profession that recommends 100% processed food for the best life. I'm just like, it just doesn't, these are very intelligent people. Vets are intelligent people. It just doesn't make any sense. And then you look back into it and you're like, well, hang on, you know, maybe the people that lectured us nutrition, maybe we didn't get enough education around it. How much time at university is spent on canine nutrition? Oh, I, it, was, it was relatively negligible that I can barely remember it. But when you're yeah, in the lab, no. if you see footage, they're all wearing white coats with brands on them, right? Yeah, I don't I don't remember it. I, I guess what I remember from the big companies was more when whenever we'd have a you know a Barbie grog or some sort of social event, the banners would be there. That's sort of what I remember. I don't remember it being quite and, and in our, you know, the vet school and stuff like that. Lots of things were sponsored by them. You know what I mean? So it wasn't as um, as obvious, like I guess I wasn't as aware that the lecturers may have been tied up with some of the big companies or anything like that. Um, but, and I don't, I don't know all the detail around that, but it, it certainly, we were certainly absolutely trained that um, kibble is the way to, you know, to look after pets and it's balanced. We, we were trained to be obsessed about complete and balanced, like obsessed about it. And to the point where you're almost fearful that if a dog had an unbalanced meal, especially as a puppy, like all of a sudden rickets was going to happen tomorrow. Like, do you know what I mean? Like it was just this obsession that complete and balanced. And I absolutely graduated thinking that raw feeders, I just rolled my eyes at them. I was like, oh, here we go. Um, and, yeah, I'm like, you're you're basically ruining your pet's life if you don't feed a bag kibble. And just, yeah, it, it just, um, and I can't speak for everyone, but it was definitely how you know, how we all graduated vet school. We're all absolutely kibble feeders. For all the, I guess, quasi-conspiracy theorists out there, that's almost a, a micro-representation of what's happening in the world on a macro level today, isn't it? I don't want to go down that particular rabbit well, hole. It just popped into bit, my head. I it, know. Oh it's, it's a little bit scary. Um, and, I mean, I don't, I don't like to over-dramatise it, um, too much but our, our industry really needs a shake-up it just doesn't make any sense to and it sounds like I'm sponsored by you guys and I'm absolutely not but it just does not make sense to feed kibble it just makes no sense so so that was what sort of started that and then I guess once you sort of the penny drops about fresh food feeding and you make the correlation with humans you're like okay well what else can I do better maybe just because a dog has an infection 
maybe antibiotics aren't the the be all and end all. Maybe antibiotics actually do harm as well as good. Maybe I need to understand the gut biome a little bit better. Maybe I can manage things topically. Uh, then I ended up getting into, and again, because my kids, I ended up studying aromatherapy as well as being a vet. So then I learned about the benefits. I mean, aromatherapy is just, it's just concentrated plants, aren't they? So, and, and lots of our, lots of our synthetic pharmaceutical drugs are originally based off plant extracts and then they're, obviously made synthetically. So you learn all about, you know, simple things with lavender and and all our essential oils. So that went, I started to go down that garden path. Um, and that's what was what sort of triggered the development of Shy Tiger, especially with the, the massive um, skyrocketing mental health issues in our pets. I mean, the, there was an American study recently, the last two years it's gone, separation anxiety has gone up over 700%. This is a, a US study. And, and you know, the, um, the, I think that's 25% in the human health, that just anxiety in general has gone up. And it, we're just seeing it in our pets just as much emotional contagion between pet owners and, and pets. And, and what really excited me about aromatherapy was the fact that it's really one of the only integrative uh, modalities we have where you can almost treat the pet owner and the pet at the same time. You diffuse your essential oils, you massage the dog, you're both getting benefits. So you're helping reduce that emotional contagion. So that was what started that. And then being a vet, i so passionate about everything preventative. I love preventative medicine. It's so much easier than reactive medicine, isn't it? So brushing dog's teeth, educating people about, about uh, natural toothpaste and things like that, that was what started that. So yeah, I've got the stress and the dental and the skin. I think anything that I can do that's preventative, that's what I've kind of bundled into Shy Tiger. So, yeah, and, and also my one of my favourite things is just educating pet owners. So to, to have a platform where I can educate pet owners so they can advocate for their pet's health, it's, um, it's a win-win for me. So I absolutely love it. Is it a concern that if you get that good at preventative measures you'll put yourself out of a job absolutely not gosh that'd be a dream wouldn't it so <laughs> yeah no unfortunately not I mean look I don't think any conventional or integrative um pro- there's nothing in the world that that would get to that point uh and and I think again what I back to what was so talking about before nurturing that bond between humans and their owners a lot of what I do is is in the clinic educating the pet owners so that they can advocate so they need to learn about what is underlying the allergies you know we might do a few tests but a lot of it is just figuring out how to manage their pets conditions whether it's mental health issues whether it's allergy whether it's um you know gut issues anything like that it's it's rarely a simple fix um, any of it is it is it so it's just that relationship with the pet owner so I don't think I'll ever be put out of a job <laughs> no I, I, I'm sure you won't be and it's interesting <laughs> you know you you spoke before about treating the owner at the same time as the pet I read an article mm. you wrote in Mamma Mia a little while back and you said there are five common mistakes that um, pet owners make and they're just the same mistakes that keep coming up over and over again and I've I think I've got them I've got them mm. written down here it's Choosing a breed based on yeah. looks and trends, and for some reason a French bulldog just pops straight into my head. Um, overattaching emotionally, which I'm guilty as charged on that one too. The training, training, yeah. training, and that's a funny one because when I was reading that, I'm, I'm like, with probably with me, there's probably some sort of macho uh, element attached to it where I think I'm Mick Dundee and I'm going to be able to train my dog with, you know, the 
the, the hand signal is going to do everything I want to do. You know, I'll train it myself, you know, and then it's assuming pets show pain the same way that humans do. And that's a really interesting one because, you know, the dogs I've had are so stoic. You know, they, they yeah. just never, never show anything wrong until it's almost a tipping point. And it's usually midnight on a Saturday yeah, night when you, when you have to rush into the vet. And if they'd told me a couple of days earlier, it would have been a much nicer trip to the vet at midday on a Thursday. But uh, And then obviously they are what they eat as well, and, and we've just spoken about that. And I think that particular one, well, that, that's what I want to sort of move forward on this one as well. And you, you, I guess just building on from what you said before about coming out of university with that mindset of, a raw feeder is ruining their dog's lives. What, what, like, can you can you remember what specifically? I mean, you said it was when you had the the human child as well, but then mm. how did that then manifest itself into how you treated your um your your patients moving forward when you said you had that penny drop moment? What did you do then? How did you how did you go? Okay, now I need to put this into practice. What'd yeah. So I think um. I mean, being a scientist, a lot of it's just research, isn't it? So you start researching uh, and then finding a community of like-minded people. So I'm an admin on a Facebook group, uh, Natural Veterinary Practitioners. So it's an Australian-based Facebook group. Um, so you've got a few well-known fresh feeding vets on it. I don't know if you know Kelly Halls from Benton's Road. So she's quite well-known um, with fresh feeding. So she's a good friend. Um, Matthew Muir, who's um, part of the Lyca group and um, lots of other fresh feeding vets, some of the smartest vets in the country. And I love them because they're absolutely evidence-based scientific vets. They've got research papers, um, but they've got a wealth of experience as well. So it's we all want to practice evidence-based medicine, don't we? So but they're Surrounding myself with people like that, as well as my own research, gave me the confidence to start opening up those conversations with pet owners. And when you become a bit more open-minded, that's, I think, when you start to learn a bit more as well. So a lot of my clients taught me so much. I spent 12 years um, doing mainly reproduction work as a vet, so making a lot of French bulldogs. Um, <laughs> so I think breeders are often a fountain of knowledge. Yeah. They've got a lot of years of, of doing things. So I learnt a lot off them. Um, and I think I did it at a good time where there were a lot more new players on the market with fresh feeding as well so that it wasn't just pet owners having to come up with their own homemade recipe which makes vets nervous that's without a doubt I guess what when vets get a bit nervous about fresh feeding is the loss of balance um so I guess I started off with the confidence of of pet owners using um complete and balanced fresh food like a big dog like other other companies similar um and I probably started off more confident with cooked and then became more confident with raw and then again, onto the research, I, I started to learn that there's more salmonella recalls on kibble than there is on raw pet food. And I mean, you just again, that's another one of those scaremongering things about raw feeding, isn't it? I'm like, you know what? You should really should not let your kids play with kibble, should you? Like, there's they're going there's more chance they're going to get food poisoning and end up in hospital um, from a bag of kibble than they will touching good quality fresh meat. Um, and then I learned more about the human grade versus pet grade meat. The pet grade meat 
industry is very scary to me. So I even nowadays I won't ever recommend people use pet grade meat because um, I just it makes me a bit nervous. Just I mean. I guess we've seen some really serious issues and I think a lot of even fresh feeders don't understand the difference between companies who use human grade meat versus pet grade meat. Don't you think? I don't I don't know. I find when I talk to people about it, they're not aware that there's some companies that use human grade versus pet grade. Um, I mean, purely for cost basis, there would be some that do, but I don't think it's, as you said, I don't think it's well known that some do and some don't, you know. But I mean, at Big Dog, we've always said it's human grade products. So I think mm, um, yeah. I think there's there's certainly a um, a good argument for to have that honesty up front when you're selling to the public as well. Um, quick one: What's the difference between yeah. fresh feeding and raw feeding, or is it the same thing? Uh, so no, fresh feeding is um, raw feeding is a component of fresh feeding. So basically, when I'm talking about fresh feeding, I'm basically saying that food that's not highly processed. So in fresh feeding. I'll, so it can be raw, it can be um, cooked. And when we talk about cooked, I do talk, so i just put the dog down. When we talk about cooked, I talk to people about the style of cooking as well because obviously anytime you heat a protein, it changes its makeup, doesn't it? So um, I like to educate people that what freeze-drying does, what dehydrating does and what cooking does and what sous vide style does, but I would still all encompass it into fresh feeding um in in that sort of mix and yeah and then obviously highly processed so tin and kibble just gets yeah i mean anything's better than a flavored biscuit right you know any of those those fresh elements that you said are better than a a a burgering well (laughs) a lot of people get a bit confused now um with the difference between some of the dog rolls versus tinned food they think it's quite similar um, you know how you get some of that cooked food in the rolls. Um, so I, you know, explain if you Google how tin food's made, it's just oh my gosh, it's disgusting. Oh so I'm probably gross. not going to do that. I don't think. <laughs> I don't need that information <laughs> so kicking around good. in my my uh, fragile brain no. at the moment. Hey, no. So, so when you, I guess, when your mindset's changing throughout this process, when you're a vet and you, and, you know you're starting to move towards the fresh feeding and you. You're tackling those issues with your your clients and your patients, but you're obviously also probably in constant communication with other vets and things like that. Did did you get any pushback for taking a more non traditional approach amongst the veterinary community? Did you were you a pariah at any time and kicked out of rooms and oh, everyone looking still at am. you? Still am. Still am. Oh no. I still am. Not in this room. So I no. So I basically. Um, ended up having, well, not having to, I basically chose to um, buy my own vet clinic so that I could practice the way I wanted to. So it's, if you're in a very conventional clinic, it is still unfortunately to this day quite challenging to be a fresh feeding vet because more than anything, it's actually quite confusing for the pet owners to come into the clinic. They'll see one vet and one vet's like, you know, I think you should include fresh food as part of the diet and that's going to give your dog your best life. Then the next time they visit a vet and it's got an ear infection and they ask what they're feeding and they're like this and they're like, oh, what are you doing? You need to go and feed kibble. So the, the client's being tossed around and confused and that's not going to help anyone. So 
if you're in a conventional clinic as a fresh feeding vet, it just doesn't work. So, um, yeah, ended up buying our own vet clinic so I can practice the way I want to. It makes complete sense. I um, It's funny, every time I'm, I'm in a – well, not every time now, but I used to – would take when I used to take the dog to the vet, what are you feeding it? I'd be like, oh, I, I can't mm. say. What, what do I say? But after a little while, it just became – I feed them raw food. And sometimes you'd see the vet give you a sideways look and – so, you know, every now and then you get a vet and go, great. And like, oh, okay, I think you yeah. might be my vet moving forward. <laughs> you know? So it's, yeah. it's funny, I think, um, from, a, from a pet owner point of view, we, we feel those, those same sorts of, I guess... Um, you feel judged, don't yeah. feel judged. But I think it is, I do think it's getting better. So I, and I did a bit of a poll on this in the Fresh Feeders group. Some part of, there's a big Facebook group for anyone who doesn't know called Fresh Feeders, Kibble Feeders Welcome. So it's an Australian-based group. It's got about 80,000 members. Uh, fantastic group, wealth of knowledge in that group. But I basically polled them just to see if they feel that there's been a shift in the, in the vet population to accepting fresh feeders. Um, and I think that the results basically suggested that the vet profession is slowly moving away from very anti-fresh feeding, which is how it was when I graduated 15 years ago. And now there's, I guess, a very a, a large population of vets, which I would consider a neutral on the topic. So they may not be pro-fresh feeding, but they're not anti anymore. And I think that's that's good. You know, that's part of the transition. You can't expect our profession to go complete do a complete 360 on it or 180 I should say um you can't expect us to do a full shift it's going to be a process isn't it so the fact that we've moved a large percentage of the profession to the neutral category and then we just need to push them to realizing the benefits of fresh feeding um that you know that that's really good so there's a few more vets around that are pro fresh feeding but there's a lot more that are at least accepting and not anti trying to shift the clients back to bags of kibble so, yeah, well, yeah, well I, I think um, I think my personal experience is that it is, as you said, more accepted, um, whether it's mm-hmm. promoted or neutral. But I also think as well, in, in and this is just my, this is the opinion of an idiot, which is me, um, it, it seems like it's being more consumer-driven than anything else. Whereas, you know, as you said previously, the vets would come out of the vet school with this, you know, mm-hmm. tunnel vision approach that it's kibble and nothing else. But this is a sort of a mm-hmm. groundswell that's coming from the other side. You know, it's it's whether yeah. they're, whether they're making it themselves at home or whether they're they're purchasing the um the the formulated products such as Big Dog. It's almost like a consumer driven trend, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have every day in clinic. Um, I'm in Montalbert in suburb, eastern suburbs of Melbourne. Every day, absolutely every day, I see at least one client that has driven across Melbourne often over an hour to come and see me because they cannot find a vet that is supportive or knowledgeable enough around raw feeding. So that is a consumer drive for sure. Like there's consumers who are just begging for their vets to support fresh feeding. And that's we have to recognise that as our profession as well, that if you don't, if you can't go to your vet and get trusted advice, where a pet owner is left to go, Google, isn't it? Um, or hopefully good Facebook groups, but it really is then left up to Google. And we we are such a trusted profession that we need to be up. We need to give this advice to our to the pet owners, so they're just going to go elsewhere. Yeah, well, 
T- tell me this now. You've spent time as a vet abroad, haven't you? Uh, yes. Yeah, so when I first graduated, I was in England, but that was only for about six months. Okay. I was, was going to ask what your uh, view is of, of how, I guess, progressed Australia is. Are, are we behind the uh, the behind the trends or are we leading the trends versus a place like the UK? I mean, they probably don't live as healthy a lifestyle as us. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I definitely don't think we're ahead for yeah. sure. I think that's um, – I don't know exactly where we are, but there's so many facets of our – that we're very conservative. I mean, I guess we're, we're really interesting in Australia because we've got some interesting proteins, don't we? We've got our kangaroo and our um, emu and our crocodile and things like that. So we do – and we've got so many fresh – so much fresh food. We have so much access to make so many beautiful foods. Um, but I get the impression that in places, I mean, I was talking to one of my followers last night uh, and she was she's moving from Scotland to Melbourne and she said she was having a lot of trouble finding food, balanced pre-made food for her dog and it's got to stay in quarantine. It's got food allergies and things. So, yeah, I guess the, the nature of the size of the market in Australia probably means we're behind because there's just not as big a demand the size of the prize but there's still not enough fresh feeders relative to the whole population that the fresh feeding um food and the integrative complementary health is still not making up enough of the market percentage wise in australia so i think we are behind the eight ball and then one of my other favorite topics is that we're just hopeless with CBD oil and things. We're so far behind the eight ball on that. It's legalized in so many countries. It's ridiculous. Oh, don't get me started on that. So, That's oh, oh so, my gosh. So I, I, I lived abroad for um, a couple of years with my dogs and I was giving them CBD oil every day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I write scripts for it all the time, so I do use a lot of CBD oil in practice, but my clients are having to pay $200 a month to access good CBD oil in Australia because it's just not, you can't access it. It's so hard. So it's uh, infuriating, the CBD situation here. Yeah, you know what, at the risk of uh, turning this podcast political, I think that's, (laughs) for me, that's a a platform that we are so far behind on as as a... as a community, our country, and it's, man, we are, a, and Queensland's actually worse than the rest of Australia, in my opinion. I'm a, I'm a you know, dyed-in-the-wall Queenslander, but when it comes to things like that, we are a nanny state. Yeah. It's, you know, we refuse to budge on those things from just age-old conservative views, and it really bothers me. Well, and isn't it bizarre? So we're so strict on that, and then yet you look at the regulations in the pet food industry and they're hopeless. So, like, they're not, it's um, the AFCO standards are, you know, I, well, in my opinion, people think they're the, um, so AFCO, for anyone who's listening, is like the one of the standards that pet food companies have to abide by with the, you know, protein levels and, and nutritional levels in the food. Um, and a lot of people think that they're optimal levels, but they're like the bare minimum, aren't they? So, and they're so low, like we've got pet foods running around that are sitting at, you know, 10, 9, 10, 11% protein and it's just and so full of carbs and you're like, dogs don't even have a carb requirement. Why? Like this is, how do, how do people get away with making it? it the, the food industry infuriates me, absolutely infuriates me. So, and then they're so strict on CBD. It doesn't make sense. Um, okay, so we're, 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 we've got to probably pull this to a close. I think we could go on for another couple of hours on this, Dr. Nicole. But I want to <laughs> I want to finish off by busting a couple of myths. Raw and fresh feeding isn't complete and balanced. Go. 
Well, it's absolutely, well, gosh, where do, this is another half-hour podcast to answer this. Raw and complete is absolutely, it, it can be not balanced without a doubt. So the days of picking up a kilo of mince and you know, frozen veggies and rice, have absolutely, that is not balanced. But there are so many fantastic foods on the market now, including Big Dog. And again, this is not sponsored at all. I absolutely recommend Big Dog in my clinic. You just need to get a balanced raw or if you or fresh food. Or if you don't want to do that, there's plenty of resources available where you can learn how to balance it yourself. But it's absolutely balanced. You do not need to add anything. If you're feeding your dog a complete and balanced raw or fresh food diet, you don't need to add anything. It is far superior to a bag of kibble or a tin of dog food. Hands down, no no one can argue any other way. Fresh feeding's too expensive. Go. Look, it can, it, fresh feeding can be made expensive, but it can also be made, it can be done really well at a budget. And I guess I would get people to look at the bigger picture than just the food. So, of course, if you're comparing a dog of supermarket tin food compared to the same volume of fresh food, yes, it is more expensive, but... In the scheme of things, per day, it's not that bad. It's just where you may have a mindset of the value of, of pet food. And then if you're looking at the health consequences of feeding a highly processed food for your dog's life, I can guarantee you those vet bills that you're going to incur, incur along the way and the heartbreak of your dog living a shorter life, what do you want, diabetes, pancreatitis, cancer, take your pig, they are going to far outweigh any difference in that slight day-to-day cost of uh, of processed food versus a fresh food diet. But you can absolutely make it to your budget. There's a lot of flexibility with fresh feeding. I couldn't agree more. Now, the other two myth busts I'd written down, we've, we've just covered. One was on AFCO and the other one was of uh, the, the dogs and, and humans are going to get sick from feeding raw, and we've covered both of those. There's, you said you're oh, more, more likely you to get salmonella from the kibble, and, and we spoke about the AFCO, so we've covered it. Dr. Nicole, yes. there you go. Great job. Now, go. if people want to uh, get get an idea of what you do with Shy Tiger and with your your um, I guess your veterinary uh, uh, clinic as well, how do they find you? So I'm on all socials. So at Shy Tiger Health. So S H Y T I G E R Shy Tiger, uh, which is symbolizing the modest strength that natural health does. That's where Shy Tiger comes from. So Shy Tiger Health on Insta, Facebook, and I do attempt TikTok as well occasionally. Uh, and the vet clinic is at Mont Albert Vet. So Mont Albert Vet uh, and both websites, shytiger.com.au and montalbertvet.com.au. Dr. Nicole Rouse, thank you so much for joining us here on Pause and Listen. Now, uh, if you have any other questions, you can email the Big Dog team at customer care at bigdogpetfoods.com and uh, whatever platform you're listening on, make sure you subscribe and give us a five-star rating. Dr. Nicole, you deserve a five-star rating for today. Uh, thank you so much. Such a pleasure. Thanks so much, Dr. Nicole. And if you're listening out there, uh, give your pooches a scratch from both of us. We'll catch you next time. Hey, thanks for listening to our podcast. For more information and content, visit the Big Dog Pet Foods website. Please note that the information discussed in these podcasts is general in nature and has been provided in good faith for educational and informational purposes only. The information provided is not, nor is it intended to be, a substitute for professional advice or care. If any of the topics discussed raise questions or concerns for you regarding the health of your pet, we recommend that you consult your veterinarian or trusted pet health provider. 
for an individual assessment and advice. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.